The missing ingredients to the Yeshua story, reading the gospel through the gospel stories through Jewish eyes. Uh, what, what's that all about? Well, as we begin, let me just sort of throw this out. Have you ever wondered about uh, questions such as, why do we have four gospels instead of one? What is really different about each one? What are they trying to get across? Well, let me suggest that an examination uh, of the Jewish structure of the Gospels and the thorough Jewish nature of these historical stories provides us with some of the answers for that. So let me begin by raising a couple questions. For audiences, maybe that's the answer to why four Gospels. And people have, in fact, postulated that there were four audiences, and uh, so they will tell us, and you can find this in some of the standard texts, well, the Gospel of Matthew, that was written to the Jewish people. The Gospel of Mark, that was written to Romans. The Gospel of uh, Luke, to the Greeks. And then there's sort of a pause. We got the Jews, we got the Romans, we got the Greeks. We got a fourth God. Oh, the Gospel of John, written to the whole world. Have you heard that background breakdown before? It was not too long ago that I got a piece of publicity from a major publisher advertising a new book on the Gospels. And lo and behold, that was the four breakdown. There's also another issue that arises um, in conjunction with this, is the development of the Gospels. Um, some will even suggest that as the early church developed, um, they had to have something in writing about this story, and so it was written down in Greek uh, as part of the development of Greek thought of that day, and in fact um, could very well have been second century in origin, because by then they needed these Gospel accounts. At which point then I raised the question, so what's the Jewish connection of these things? Well, in trying to pursue that, and I'm going to pursue that with you just a little bit right now, I'm suggesting three different possibilities. Um, and as uh, one of your members and one of our longtime friends noted, I still suffer from that strange obsession or disease called alliteration. So if you hadn't picked that up already, here we have some more for you. When we're talking about the Jewish connection, are we talking about something that's lectionary? Are we talking about something that's literary? Are we talking something that's linguistic? Well, we're talking about lots of things, all of those things. So one step at a time. Lectionary, when we're talking about lectionary, what are we talking about when we use this term lectionary? Lectionary has to do with, the, um, with a calendar that schedules readings for a religious purpose. So in some churches you have a lectionary. In Judaism we also have a lectionary, we call it the Sedra cycle or the Parashiot. Well, in looking at the Gospels from this particular perspective, um, some scholars have suggested in looking at the Gospel of Mark that it functioned as a festival lectionary, uh, or perhaps even a messianic Jewish Passover Haggadah. Um, Others have suggested that Matthew functioned as a festival lectionary. In other words, a schedule of readings based around the Jewish holidays. Um, Luke has been suggested to be a weekly lectionary. In other words, like our weekly cycle of readings. Um, John, uh, a number of scholars have suggested, was a commentary on the lectionary, the reading cycle, but with a focus especially on the holidays. So that's one suggestion for a Jewish connection. Another suggestion for, the Jewish, for a Jewish connection has to do with the literary background of the Gospels. Um, all right, here's, here's what you've got. You've got a story about a great miracle worker. 
You've got the miracles spread through these accounts of this story. And then along the way, you've got sections of important teaching. So you've got sections of teaching, got sections of miracles, all as part of an unfolding historical story. Well, that sounds exactly like the Gospels, right? Only I wasn't talking about the Gospels. I was talking about the story of Moses from Exodus through Deuteronomy. And others picked up on that as well. And then you, you have, in addition to that, you've got these interesting sagas, sort of shorter stories, that you find in the former prophets. And you should be going, huh? Well, if you've read the former prophets, you should be going, ah, Elijah and Elisha. Same kind of thing. So there was, there's a literary background on which to base the kind of things that the Gospels are doing and are. And then there's the whole thing called the linguistic background. And by linguistic background, I'm dealing with such things as um, uh, idioms. You know, idioms, we have them. Hit the ceiling. Uh, kill time. Pick now listen, don't just listen to them. Picture these things again. Hit the ceiling. Kill time. Buy the farm. Eat one's heart out. Um, be in hot water. Throw in the towel. Kick the bucket. Look, um, or... Uh, one that was act, one that actually happened. Uh, that was, uh, I've got. I, I've heard this story. I'm familiar with this story uh, about a speaker in Japan who was being um, translated, and uh, as he was being translated, he said, uh, um, "I've been. I'm tickled to death to be with you." And of course, the Japanese translation comes out quite literally, and there's a shock from the audience. Uh, sort of like uh, a similar phrase, I died laughing. All right, you get the point. A, a non-English speaker who heard these idioms uh, translated literally into his or her own language would probably find them both amusing, maybe, and confusing. However, if the reader did not suspect that they were literal translations of English idioms and took them at face value instead, the information that was coming across would be very misleading. Uh, there is the story of um, a little boy who thought that God had to do everything with his left hand. Why, you might ask? Because he had been taught, very faithfully, that Jesus sits on the right hand of God. <laughs> now, it took, took some of you a little longer than the others to get there. But that's the nature of idioms. Now, look, most English... <laughs> Most English translations of the Hebrew scriptures are full of Hebrew idioms. Patrice mentioned one just last night, and I don't know if you caught it. It's the cave scene between Saul and David, and we're told why Saul went into the cave. And the Old English simply reads, he went in there to cover his feet. Look, if I had cold feet, a cave is not where I'm headed to warm my tootsies. But remember the kind of clothes that people wore in those days. When a person literally covered his feet, certain clothes had dropped down to make other physical processes possible. The cave was the local restroom. And so the English is telling, or the Hebrew is telling us something that the English doesn't always convey. He went in to cover his feet. Um, English translations of the Gospels now uh, also preserve these kind of things, and some scholars have called them not just idioms, but Hebraisms. They're Hebraisms because they are actually Hebrew in another language's dress. So you have, for example, one that's very familiar in the Gospel of Luke. Lift up the eyes and see. You know, picture that with me for a second. 
All right. Uh, for example, in, in well, I was going to say parable. It may not be a parable, but it's certainly a story. It may be a parable about the miserly rich man and the poor man named Lazarus in, in Luke. That same expression had been current in Hebrew since biblical times, and it, and it appears some 35 times in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, now, note that the, that the Hebrew uses two verbs, lift up the eyes and see, whereas in English we only use one. We would say he looked or he saw. Uh, this doubling of the verb seems somewhat, well, what's a good English term for bright and early Sunday morning? Superfluous? Redundant? But it's part of the beauty of the Hebrew language. We do a lot of doubling there. And by the way, there is no evidence of this expression being used in the normative Greek of Yeshua's day. And yet here it is found in the Greek text of the Gospels. This passage, Luke 16, 23, and related ones, is translated, therefore, word for word into English, and the result is what we call a Hebraisms. And there are other examples that are found in the, uh, in the uh, what should I say, in the Hebrew literature of this time period as well. So, if a person is fluent in both Greek and Hebrew, Many Hebraisms then become readily apparent, and they're, de they're detected the same way in which someone would immediately notice alien elements in the speech of a non-English speaker. For example, if you ever heard someone speaking English who was thinking in another language, you probably have heard several non-English expressions. Um, and if you also happen to be familiar with the native speaker's language, you probably could identify the language that the native speaker was thinking in. For instance, if a native English speaker, speaker said something like this, and we were in Germany just a few weeks ago, and I actually heard this, and I thought, oh yeah, they do that. If, um, if a native German speaker told you to mind your own beer, you don't have to check to see if your mug happens to be nearby. Your knowledge of the German language and culture will tell you he's telling you, mind your own business. We had a uh, friend whom we traveled to the Ukraine with many, many years ago. Some of you will know his name, so I'll using this again, example. Eliezer Orbach. And uh, when he got involved in discussions, especially as he shared them with others, uh, and if he was working with someone, um, he would get passionate and he would tell the person he was uh, not conversing with as in face-to-face, -face, but alongside as in face-to-face -face with someone. He would say, poke your finger in their eye. Poke your finger in their eye? It's the equivalent of, oh, uh, to take you some, because I can see some of you in age reflect almost as old as we are. The old TV program that specialized in, suck it to them. Poke your finger in their eye. Um, if you knew something about... <laughs> Polish, you got the idea. Anyhow, um, in the same way, scholars who are familiar with uh, Greek and Hebrew are able to recognize Hebrew idioms in the Greek texts of the Gospels. Um, for example, the many Hebraisms in Luke, as, as we're starting to see, lift up the eyes and see, are part of what uh, leads uh, scholars to conclude that the story of Yeshua, as found in the Gospels, is based on... Um, Hebrew sources. Now, let me be very clear. Not part of this story, but a very important part of understanding this story. And so this is something that people do not always get clear when we talk about 
well, we move the missing ingredients. The Gospels, as with all of the Newer Testament, were written originally in Greek. All right, in case you didn't hear that or think you heard it correctly, the Gospels and all of the rest of the Newer Testament were written originally in Greek. Is everybody now on the same page? Okay, now I can get back to the story. Okay, now that we're back to the story, you've got this gospel material that is clearly drawn from Hebrew sources. In other words, the people who wrote, nevertheless, were still thinking from within a Hebrew, Hebrew linguistic perspective because that was their native language. And so you get such phrases, and I'm not going to give you the Greek unless you're really interested in it. Um, you'll have a Greek verb, and then um, you have an accompanying verb. Uh, so two verbs stuck together, and it's often translated in English, and it came to be or it came to pass that. The old English used to be full of this. Uh, why is that so significant? Because if you read um, many of the parashiot, they begin with vehaya, and the best translation is the old, still the Old English, it came to pass that. Sometimes it's translated, and it was. Well, this Greek construction is the exact parallel to that Hebrew that opens up so many of our parashiot. Um, oh, Luke chapter 22, Yeshua is heading for Jerusalem, and he says, in some translations translated this literally, with desire I have desired to go to Jerusalem. With desire I have desired. No, I'm going to desire without desire. It's not good English, but it's great Hebrew. Um, oh, he answered and said. Well, which was it? Did he answer or did he say? Well, in Hebrew, it's just the one thing. Um, before the face of. That's a very typical Hebrew um, expression. And you find it carried, off, carried forward into the Greek. So that's, that's the kind of stuff you find in Luke. And remember, Luke's supposed to have been written to the Greeks. Okay, uh, one of the striking things about the Gospel of Mark, and uh, it's striking if you've read, the, read from the Torah or watched somebody else read from the Torah, it seems as if almost every paragraph of Mark begins with the Greek word chi. Chi is the Greek word and. Well, you know, Marcy's bobbing her head up and down because she's read, read, she's read from the scroll. Virtually everything we read every week from the scroll begins with and. And you find this throughout the Gospel of Mark, so much so that one of the standard Greek grammars on the Gospel of Mark reflected, and here I'm going to quote, Mark's Greek is always Greek, yet it's translation Greek. Not that he translated a Semitic writing, but because he reproduces Semitic teaching. Mark. Well, how about John? Well, going back to a previous generation of scholarship, one of the foremost writers on the Gospel of of um, John simply said, well, it's clearly Aramaic in the original. Um, an important European Jewish scholar suggested that it reflects a very strong Hebrew mindset. Or one of the fathers of um, Dead Sea Scroll scholarship, Frank Moore Cross, simply put it this way, John, it's the most Jewish of the Gospels. Well, I thought that was written to the whole world. Anyhow, uh, then along comes Matthew, and that's little discussion about Matthew, that of course was the gospel to the Jews. Well, there is beyond that assumption that 
may or may not be correct, given that the other assumptions may not be so correct. We do have this information. This information comes from Papias, from Irenaeus, from Origen, from Eusebius. These are some of what are called the early church fathers who take the, the movement back um, late second century, early third century, maybe even a little earlier, and they comment that um, Matthew wrote his gospel initially in Hebrew, or among Hebrews, or for those of the Jews who became Christians, and in their mother tongue, just to quote several of these people. Um, so there's a strong connection of Matthew, therefore, with a Jewish audience and with Jewish language. Now, again, not part of the story, but important if you're going to understand this story. First of all, the, the, the common spoken language in the Second Temple period by Jews in Israel was not Aramaic. Okay, I'll say it again. The common spoken language in Israel during the Second Temple period was not Aramaic. Guess what it was? Oh, you, you get half credit for that answer. Hebrew. They also knew Aramaic because it was the language of the Eastern Empire. And of course they knew Greek because it was the English of the day. These people were at least trilingual because some of them may have known Latin as well. But Hebrew was the common spoken language of that time period. Uh, Dr. Patrice did a whole master's thesis on this subject when she was in some of her university work. And if you examine the texts and you examine the history, you'll find that that's true. If you examine the archaeology, it's true. If you don't like it being true, I'm sorry, but that's the way it goes. We've got to get back to the story. So anyhow, um, and in fact, Papias does say that he wrote in Hebrew, but too, too frequently, others come along and translate it as, oh, he meant Aramaic. But if you read what Papias read, wrote, he said, Hebraios. Now that's Greek. How many of you understand the word Hebraios? Only one? Is Hebraios a term for Aramaic or Hebrew? Uh, definitely Hebrew, because there's a different term for Aramaic. Okay? So, anyhow, sorry about getting lost on that thing. It's, it does bug me from time to time, the assumptions that are made along those lines. Now, Hebrew, if you, if you know it, and even if you don't know it, prefers to link nouns, whereas Greek or English would use a noun plus a modifying adjective. For example, English or Greek speakers would talk in terms of, um, let's use the phrase, false prophet, with false modifying the term prophet. Hebrew speakers, however, say prophet lie. Um, in other words, lying reflects the character of such a prophet. Therefore, he or she is a prophet of a lie. Now, the word of does not um, appear in the Hebrew. It's simply implied by the grammatical structure here. And in translating the English, we would simply say we'd add of. This is something, by the way, that's called the construct state in Hebrew. Um, now, other noun plus noun expressions uh, found in the Gospels include such phrases as you're familiar with, the furnace of fire. No, thank you. Make my furnace one of water, please. You can hear the redundancy in it. Or, um, oh, the grass of the field. So you want grass of the field rather than grass of the sky? You see how some of these things work. And speaking of the sky, you have the phrase repeatedly, the birds of the sky. Friends, you don't need to talk about the birds of the sky. They didn't have penguins and ostriches in Israel, okay? It's, it illustrates how redundant the second noun of the construct state may often be in English. Um, the expression is simply an idiomatic way of saying birds, that's all. But the frequency of this kind of noun 
chains, for lack of a better term, indicates that there is a Hebrew oral tradition that underlies the Greek texts of the Gospels. So much so for connections. At this time in the late Second Temple period, uh, memorization was the key to learning. That's because there, was an, there weren't a great many printing presses around so that you could print books freely. And so, you know, books tended to be expensive. Um, and so, in the eyes of the rabbis, repetition becomes the key to learning, so you will end up memorizing the text you were going to read. And there were many methods that were used to assist the student in memorizing his or her lessons. Um, there's one passage in the Talmud that even describes in detail the memory aids that were used to teach small children the Hebrew alphabet. And the rabbis would say things like this frequently. It's better that a person repeats his or her lesson um, 101 times rather than just 100 times. What's the point? You stop at 101? No. You've got to keep repeating if you're going to get it correctly. Um, this means that the scriptures were known by heart by everyone. From quite early in the Second Temple period, the um, late uh, Jewish scholar Shmuel Safrai pointed out, used to teach at Hebrew University, uh, he said, one could hardly find a little child in the street who did not know the scriptures. In fact, going back to Jerome, Jerome is writing late fourth century. He says, there does not exist a no, he, there does not exist any Jewish child who does not know by heart the, the whole of the history from Adam to Zerubbabel, end quote. Now, please remember a couple things. Number one, Jerome is not writing about the metropolises of Israel. He's writing from a place called Bethlehem. Now, we know Bethlehem, but Bethlehem was really just a small village, so not a major metropolis. And he says there, there does not exist any Jewish child who does not know all of this by heart. But what is the, all of this that he knows by heart? Everything from A to Z, right? Adam to Zerubbabel. Well, how very convenient for us English speakers because Jerome wasn't speaking English. So what's he talking about when he's talking about Adam? Brief course in Jewish history. Who's the first person who shows up in Jewish history? Adam. Where does he show up? You can't answer all the questions, Marcy. So let the, the others are going to have to chime in here. But that's correct. She got the, I wanted her to stop because that's the easy question. Where does Zerubbabel show up? First of all, who is Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel, by, you should know this, who is Zerubbabel? It's not part of this story, but it's important to the larger story. Zerubbabel was a major character who was the first person to bring our people back from captivity in Babylon, but he also became a major messianic picture. Remember I mentioned that yesterday morning? Some of you are nodding your heads. Some of you nodded your heads off yesterday while I was saying that. Okay, so I heard it out there. Where does Zerubbabel occur? Whoever said it, said it right, so say it again. Thank you, Chronicles. Why is that important? The last book in the Jewish ordering of the Bibles is Second Chronicles. It's as if Jerome were saying they knew the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Okay? So they had it all memorized. Now, the prophets of the Older Testament, as it turns out, lifted words and phrases from the Torah, and they adeptly wove them into their own messages. 
This instructional and interpretational strategy that they were use, using allowed them to utilize the power and the authority of texts that were considered authoritative. The Torah was a foundational text for us. And so what it did is it infused their words with an authority that came directly from Sinai. By using and recombining materials from various contexts of the Torah and then reapplying them to new situations, by doing so, the prophets were also influencing the manner in which their communities understood these earlier texts. So the prophets drew on the authority of the Torah, and the Torah was revitalized through its new application. So it was what you would call a symbiotic relationship. This practice of hinting at or alluding to the scriptures became known as something called remez in later periods. Now, at this point, need to make an, um, an important observation. The effectiveness of this teaching strategy is directly proportional to the amount of scripture that the audience had committed to memory. Because if you're drawing on words and concepts from a previous text, it doesn't help if the people don't know the words and concepts of that previous text. Is that fair enough? All right. So the effectiveness of the teaching strategy is directly proportional to the amount of scripture that had been memorized by the audience. And given a look at these texts, the audience must have had an impressive command of scripture in order for this technique to succeed. You see, people in those days found enjoyment in discussing and retelling scripture. So it was natural then for them to commit large chunks of scripture to memory. And this high level of scripture liter literacy, the, in other words then, in the community is what allowed the prophets and their successors to develop this thing called remez, hinting, into a powerful teaching tool. So, for example, Yeshua repeatedly hinted at Scripture in his teachings. Luke chapter eleven twenty is a very interesting text. He says, But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, item two, if I cast out tech, uh, demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yeshua, by using this phrase, finger of God, head, therefore said a mouthful. He had effectively silenced um, any opposition. Look at the text. Why? Well, this same expression appears in Exodus 8, 19, the finger of God. And in that passage, the pagan magicians of Pharaoh failed to bring, pardon me, failed to bring lice from the dust of the earth, just as Moses and Aaron had done. Wait a second. Have you ever thought about that? Here are these magicians, and they're trying to copy what Moses and Aaron are doing. And Moses and Aaron bring lice. What do they try to do? Stop the lice? No. Bring more lice. Some, some, thank you. There is humor in these texts if you bother to read them carefully. Don't miss out on that. So anyhow, that's what they're trying to do, and they fail. And their response was, this is the finger of God. So what Yeshua then communicated with these four simple words lifted from Exodus 8, 19, um, was actually stunning. He told those who suspected him of being in association with Hasatan, he, um, he told them that even the pagans of Pharaoh's court could recognize God's hand at work, but they would not. Ouch. And his opponents were silenced just as Moses and Aaron's had been. 
As a result, remez, this hermeneutical technique of hinting to bring out the meaning of a text by using patterns or echoes, it resulted in what we might call trajectories or templates or contours or silhouettes or reflections or images or phrases or descriptions from earlier texts that are now incorporated into later texts to help us better understand the meaning of those later texts. Remes lays the foundation for something that becomes known as, as Haggadic Midrash, like father, like son. This is the way in which it's described. And I'm trying to think of, this is the way it's described by scholarship, but it reflects, a, it reflects an approach that was done, used by one of the rabbis in the Midrashim, and I can't remember who it was, and that's going to bother me for the rest of our time together. But anyhow, the way in which it, it's described is one might view what happens to the fathers as a sign of what the future holds for the sons. One might view what happens to the fathers as a sign of what the future holds for the sons. In other words, the future is embedded in the past, as in seed form, much like DNA, to get back to our DNA issue from last night. So what happens is there's a historical patterning that takes place in the text, All right. illustrated by this story that you're all familiar with. Okay, there's this young Jewish kid gets hauled off into a foreign land, starts out as a servant, ends up as number two in the land. What story am I telling? No, I'm telling a story of Daniel. And guess what I would have said if someone had said Daniel? I'm telling you the story of Joseph. Why? Because the one is a pattern of what happens to the other. So you can see it in some of our familiar biblical texts. And if you keep your eyes open, you'll see it in many more of the texts. That's part of what Dr. Patrice was sharing with you last night with the reflections of David in the life of Yeshua. Um, that means these people, within just a very few words of a text or a story being told orally, could give you the background that was being drawn on. Let's try you out on this. Tell me how quickly you can fill in the story. Oh, say, can. Yeah, it's on the board. It's on the screen. You know it already. From a few short words, maybe after a couple or three, you can tell me the rest of what that line is. Let's try another one. Live. From. Two words. Eight letters. You told me the rest of it. So all you need in your story is live from, and everybody else will fill in the rest of the story, and you've saved some space. Now, how does that work out in our Gospels? Thank you. I'm glad somebody appreciated the way I put that. First of all, some patterns in, um, in the Gospel of Matthew. We're talking now about patterns as part of this whole process. Okay, um, this is a pattern. First, let me tell you how this was discovered. I am teaching a very intensive phrase-by-phrase, -phrase, almost word-for-word -word Bible study in the Gospel of Matthew. And those who are in the Bible study, they're really into it. On the other hand, sitting in that Bible study, being thoroughly bored, is my delightful wife. And as she's paging through some texts, she all of a sudden discovers a handful of these things. So this first part is her fault for not paying attention to my Matthew Bible study. She ended up in Daniel. And it's uh, basically Daniel chapter 6. And... Uh, she noticed that in Daniel, uh, it's expressly said in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, that Daniel, uh, on a regular basis, found himself three times a day praying towards Jerusalem. 
And she said, you know, that sounds familiar. I know someone else who prayed three times facing Jerusalem, and it happened to be Yeshua, Matthew 26, in the garden scene of Gethsemane. Um, a few verses later, this is the one that really triggered it, and then she went backwards. Uh, Daniel 6.17, Daniel's in the lion's den, and they come and they roll the stone in front of the den and they seal the stone. Does that at all sound familiar to anybody? And then someone comes in verse uh, 19 by the first light of dawn to examine the situation. And in one case, they roll a stone away and a dead man is alive, Daniel. In the other case, they came and the stone had already been rolled away. And guess what? A dead man is alive. All right, this is found, this kind of patterning is found uh, throughout the closing chapters of this gospel, but I wanted to give you three examples. Um, Danny and Moshe, okay. Yeah, it's not a singing group, obviously. So let's talk about Moshe for a second. When you read some of the stories, the traditional stories about Moses' birth, here's what you find. You find that the texts tell us, both in Midrash and in Talmud, that his birthplace was flooded with light. Birthplace, flooded with light. Does that at all sound familiar? In another story? Well, intentionally so. Um, uh, I'm going to give you another one here before we get to the mountaintop experience. By the way, I didn't hear anybody reflecting on my second description of Danny and Moisha. Oh, you just now noticed it? Okay. Anyhow, now that we've seen the light, before we go to the mountaintop experience, um, you remember uh, what happened to Moses in Egypt? He had to leave Egypt for his own good. And then the, the word comes from the Lord. It's um, Exodus 4.19. Go and return because those seeking your life have died. Okay. Well, the okay is this. Yeshua's family flees to Egypt for their safety. And the angel comes in Matthew 2.20 and says to Joseph, those seeking the child's life have died. Now, if you've memorized all of Scripture... Like that, you'd realize what the connection is. And you'd realize the connection because in Joseph's case, was it those seeking the child's life who had died? No, it was Herod. But the angel, as recorded specifically, reflected more directly back to the Moses story. So that's the flight for life. Now the mountaintop experience. What you find in the Gospel of Matthew is very interesting. You find that Yeshua's teachings are, in fact, grouped into five sections. Why not seven sections? A much more complete number. Why not six? The week is chock full of stuff and we take a day off. Why not four? For one of the four Gospels, or even three, for one of the three. You know, I can go on like, the, like what is it, the 12 days of Christmas? It's five intentionally, five blocks of teaching. Why five blocks of teaching? Where else do you find five blocks of teaching? Moses. And so later Jewish literature is often grouped into fives or five blocks, for example, the Psalms. And at the end of it, we know that they are grouped together intentionally because at the end of each one of them is a unique phrase for the gospel writer. After he had finished teaching or these teachings, and you only find them in those five places, and you find them in that same grouping, and uh, 
So you have five blocks of teachings, and guess what? The first of those teachings occurs on a mountain. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the others occur on or near mountains. And the last of the teachings, one looking into the future, is often called the Olivet Discourse. Now, what is, what is Olivet? A mountain. So can you see it? Five blocks of teaching occurring mainly from the mountains. So a mountaintop experience. And then you've got something truly miraculous. Chapters 8 and 9 in the Gospel of Matthew are the main chapter in which you've got miracles concentrated. Okay, now I've set the stage for you to give me the correct answer on this. How many miracles do you think are recorded in Matthew 8 and 9? The story is Danny and Moshe. How many miracles? I heard one out there. Go ahead, say it again. Five. You would think that, but that has to do with the writings, not the miracles. But very good. Thank you. Would anybody else like to venture a guess? It's okay to be wrong. It's a Sunday morning. The work week hasn't started yet. You're still on break. How many miracles? Gang, Passover time. Ten, thank you, of course. You think that happened by accident? Oh, or maybe he ran out of miracles when he reached ten. Oh, no, never mind. I got the double digits. That's enough. No, ten, because it's intentional to make the connection. Um, and then... In the section of this gospel in which we are looking ahead, the looking ahead takes place on a mountain. Remember, what did we call it? The Olivet Discourse. At the end of his life in Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30, we have Moses also doing the same thing. He's looking ahead into Israel's future, and where does it take place? On a mountain. And then this I suggested to you yesterday morning, so I just remind you of this. Um, contractual language. When that covenant was initiated on Mount Sinai, they had the covenant ceremony, concluding ceremony, and that covenant concluding ceremony had to do with a meal. And, as, and just before the meal, Moses came down and he said, this is the blood of the covenant. Yeshua, in Matthew, as he concludes that ceremonial meal just before his death and resurrection, takes those words and says, this is my blood of the covenant. That phrasing is not accidental. It is, in fact, intentional to show us something about the pattern of Moses. A rabbi from Gilead. Boy, he's really going off his rocker this time. First, let me ask you a question. Who do we know of from Gilead? All right, let's try this again. I know it's now Sunday morning, but that means Shabbat is over. When we conclude Shabbat, how do we conclude Shabbat? I heard Havdalah. Do you agree with her? She's right, so do agree with her. And how, what is part of Havdalah? What, what is the closing part of Havdalah? Do we not sing? Who do we sing about? Eliyah. Yeah, you'd better tell me because you don't want to hear me sing it. And what is the translation? Elijah the prophet, Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah the Gileadite. Ah, he's from Gilead. Okay, now that we've gotten that part of it worked out, how does the rabbi fit in? And I'll get back to Elijah in just a minute. Okay. One of the things you find in the Gospel of Mark, I already hinted at, is this repeated use of and, 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 and he did this, and he did that, and he did this. Um, and in fact, often it's, and suddenly he did this, and immediately he did that, and then he did this. It's as if you're hurrying through the entire Gospel. You're hurrying from place to place. When you hurry from place to place, there's a technical term for that. You're itinerant, or you're itiner itinerating. I think that's a word. No, it's not. It is now because I just made it up. Um, there's a, what's the linguistic term for what I just did? Coinage, thank you. All right, 
the rabbis of those days, remember, were traveling rabbis. They would go from place to place, and this is exactly the impression you get from the way in which this gospel is structured. Now, how, how does Elijah fit into all this? Well, the foundation for that pattern is found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. It says, look for the coming of Elijah, who will announce the great and awesome day of the Lord. So the people were looking for that. And you find that looking for at the very beginning of this gospel, gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And who shows on the scene? The one who is uh, the one who's preparing the way for the Lord. Um, and what's the second part of that verse? As he draws a blank. Anyhow, um, it's drawn directly from um, both Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. And the person who shows up on the scene preparing the way for the Lord is described in these opening several verses of Mark and then in, chapter, in verse 6 in exactly the same way as Elijah is described in 1 Kings. And by exactly the same way, I mean using the same words and descriptions. So if you're listening to this text or you're reading this text, you, you have now understood, yo, Elijah's on the scene. We were look, told to look for the coming, and here he is. He's dressed in exactly the same way. Clothes make for the man. He was wearing the same clothes as Elijah. Then you come to the end of Mark chapter 7, and it says something like this. Mark 7, verse 37. The people are amazed at him. Now let me see if I can remember the text. I'm trying to remember text. I may actually look it up. Ah, and as part of their response, the response was, he has done all things well. Unique phrase in all of the Gospel of Mark. He must have accomplished something at that point in time for them to respond that way. He has done all things well. So what is one of the things that Elijah is known for? A lot of things you can tell me. Yeah. One of the things he's known for is miracles. So maybe since this was, this was a response that was given to one of Yeshua's miracles, maybe it has to do with miracles. So we asked the question uh, after this miracle, and that was how many? Well, how many miracles had Yeshua done in these opening seven chapters? Would anyone like to guess? And this is purely a guess, but go ahead. Ten is a very good guess. It's not correct, but it's a very good guess. He has done all things well. He's reached uh, a specific standard. Seven is another good answer. Not a right one, but another good one. You're going the wrong direction. <laughs> but it's a good answer. I heard a 10. I heard a 12. Very good answer. 16. Now why 16? That's an important question. Why 16? Well, the rabbis have an answer for that in the Midrashim. They say that eight is all the miracles that Elijah did, and Elisha came along and did twice as many as his master. Twice as many as eight is 16. There's a connection here. And in other words, what the connection here is, very precisely, is as Elijah was exceeded by Elisha, so also the one whom Elijah announces, remember the Elijah figure at the very beginning, has been exceeded by the one whom he was supposed to announce. Makes sense, right? And then in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, there are more miracles and a specific number again. Would you like to guess how many more miracles there are in Mark? No, you would think 16, and that would be a very good, thank you, and it's a very good answer. It's a very good answer. But as Elisha exceeded his master by eight miracles, so Yeshua exceeds Elisha by eight. There's exactly eight more. Is this an accident of mathematics? No, in mathematics, as they say in some crime dramas, there is no coincidence. Okay, 
it's intended to show a pattern. Um, three strikes and you're out. The pattern is illustrated in a number of specific cases as well elsewhere. Um, the story is, uh, Peter says, after Yeshua says it, uh, his followers were denying him, Peter, was, Peter says, I'm, I won't deny you. And in fact, the text is precisely, tells us precisely, no, Peter, you'll deny me three times. It's interesting that as he's getting ready to leave the earth, Elijah says to Elisha, don't follow me, I'm going to die. Um, God will take care of you. And three times, Elisha says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. And another, the other striking thing here is, um, if you look at the overall structure of Mark, and it's not on the outline, if you look at the overall structure of Mark, the overall structure of Mark is exactly like the overall structure of the Elijah-Elisha narratives, and it's the exact same overall structure as Peter's preaching in Acts. Now, why is that significant? Because history tells us that Mark functioned as Peter's scribe recording what he said. So when you read Mark, you are in effect, as um, Papias says in the second century, you are getting the gospel of Peter. You wonder why Peter didn't have a gospel? Yeah, he had a gospel. Mark wrote it for him, in a sense. Fair enough? All right, what's up, Doc? One of my favorite characters and expressions. What's up, Doc? Well, my cuz. Romans 16, verse 21. The rabbi is... Um, is talking about some people in that text, and he's talking about some of his kinsmen, you know, cousins, and among his kinsmen, he, kinsmen, he lists Luke. All right, now, here's a very difficult question to ask on any morning, let alone a morning in which you're supposed to be off. Luke, kinsman or cousin to Paul. You ready for this? If Luke is Greek and not Jewish, what does that make Paul? If Paul is Jewish and not Greek, what does that make Luke? Thank you, my cuz. Um, in fact, there's a tradition uh, that goes back to Epiphanius and even earlier that Luke was one of the 70. Remember, Yeshua called two different groups as his main inner circle, 12 and 70. Uh, and in fact, part of that tradition suggests that Luke was also one of the two on the road to Emmaus. Now, here's the, interesting thing, here's the interesting thing that you find about Luke. The only gospel that records the calling of the 70 is Luke. And as you read the language of the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, the language there is such that um, you feel like the, the writer is part of the experience, that he actually walked the road. And the Greek structure there indicates that. So Luke, uh, well, I guess he was a Jewish author after all. Uh, more on that in other, in other times and circumstances. Now, given that, what is Luke trying to get across to us? Well, first, one of the things that we'll notice is what, what I've called counter-contamination. Well, what is counter-contamination? It means that you laid your hand on the, um, on the counter at the... Uh, at the local CVS, and somebody hadn't wiped their hands before, and no. But it's sort of related to that. Um, thank you for those of you who responded in, in the proper way to that. There are certain things that the Levites and the priests could not touch without becoming contaminated. And Luke makes it a very strong point to tell us that Yeshua touched all three. 
And what happened wasn't he wasn't contaminated. He contaminated those he touched, you know, whether it's he healed and restored them. Um, leprosy, dead, and all of a sudden the third one, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, um, bloody stuff. He healed the lepers, right? He, it's in Luke, we're told. He raised, touched the dead body and raised him, raised the gown. And, of course, then there's that woman who had the hemorrhaging. Okay. Um, who's your daddy? In other words, thank you. In other words, literally, who's your daddy? Genealogy. Where did you come from? Why, is ge why stress genealogy? It's stressed in Matthew. It's also stressed in Luke. Well, there are two groups of people for whom genealogy was absolutely essential, kings and priests. So Luke is telling us he was one or the other or both by mentioning uh, a genealogy. But if he's just reversed these Levitical contaminations, then perhaps what Luke is telling us is that this guy is a priest and he's got a genealogy like a priest. Oh, and by the way, what's Zech have, what does Zech have to do with Theo? Well, first of all, who's Zech? At the very beginning of the book of Luke, who shows up on the scene? Zechariah. Who was Zechariah? A priest. All right. Now, the book begins with a priest. The book is dedicated to a man whose name is Theophilus. Oh, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, of course, in Greek it means lover of God. This is some high official who loved God. Eh, maybe. Many years ago, we had the, uh, we had the um, opportunity to see this sort of develop. There was a part of the um, upper city of Jerusalem overlooking the temple, Mount Daria, uh, where they had discovered some important archaeological remains. And when we first started going, they were just beginning to uncover them. Now it's an amazing, um, it's a museum and place you a walk through experience. It's called the Herodian Mansions. Not because they are the mansions that were built by Herod, but they're mansions built during the time of Herod. These were the mansions that were built for the high priest and his family. It was prime location. You know the story. Location, location, location. This was it. Well, as they were excavating, they found some, um, some inscriptions, and uh, those indicated some of the people who stayed there. And one of the people who stayed in the Herodian mansions, who lived in the Herodian mansions, was a man by the name of Theophilus. Oh, how interesting. Yes, how interesting. Theophilus was high priest in Jerusalem from the years 37 to 41. So this book that Luke is writing about priests is written to the priest, the high priest. Um, trouble on the Temple Mount. Well, uh, that sounds sort of like today's newspapers and social media or whatever and What's the trouble in the Temple Mount? It's not so much that there's trouble, but here's the story. Where does the story of Luke begin? In the Temple. Where does the story of Luke end? Would you like to guess? On the Temple, unlike the other Gospels. Who's interested in the Temple? Priests. Who functions at the Temple? Priests. In other words, Luke is presenting for us a priestly pattern that Yeshua felt. Remember? What happened to the fathers is a sign of what happens to the sons. These are the kind of patterns you're looking for. A priest. Um, I sort of apologize for this next description as we move to the second part of Luke. A house, a house, my kingdom for a house. Come on, people, Shakespeare? Okay, thank you. All right, but in our particular case, I've twisted it just a little bit. Right at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, just after the Zechariah story. It's Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33, and it's also in, in 
verse 27. An angel shows up on the scene, shows up to this gal by the name of Miriam. And we're told, it's all about, about Miriam, but what are we told about Miriam? She's engaged to Joseph. At this point, a little extraneous to the story, and even more extraneous to the story, one would think, of the house of David. And then in verses 32 and 33, the angel says, here's the promise of God, that he will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom forever. In these verses, you have house, kingdom, and throne, which are the three key terms in 2 Samuel 7, 16, which Patrice mentioned last, last night, the three key terms that summarize the Davidic covenant promise. In other words, there's Davidic material right here at the, or a connection, a Davidic connection right here at the very beginning. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a terminology that's very frequently found in shepherd passages elsewhere in Scripture. And in fact, it's only in Luke, Luke chapter 15, that you have the parable of the lost sheep. Remember that there were a hundred sheep and one got lost, and so the shepherd went after the one sheep. Are you feeling a little bit sheepish yet? Who was known as a great shepherd? David, before he was king. Remember? Okay, we'll take attendance again. How many of you were out last night? Remember the David story? Son of David? Okay, just checking. All right. In that case, you will know this next one. Um, I just can't stop crying. It's where Dr. Patrice ended uh, yesterday evening. Second Samuel 7, verses 23 and 30. And so you remember the scene since most of you were here. I'll just remind you of it. David is having to leave Jerusalem because of what's going on with Absalom, Absalom. And as he leaves Jerusalem, the crowds line the streets and they're crying. Little later on in the first, second Samuel, yeah, second Samuel text. You have from the Mount of Olives, David looking back at Jerusalem. And he looks back at Jerusalem and it says he cried. Do either of those two scenes sound familiar? They better after last night. As Yeshua is leaving Jerusalem, only Luke records it. The crowds line the streets and weep. As, Jerus as Yeshua is overlooking Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, Luke tells us Yeshua wept. Oh, another coincidence. No, another connection with David. In other words, Luke is not only telling us that Yeshua fulfills the expectations of the priest to come. There was a messianic priest expectation at that time. He's also fulfilling his role as how, as the one who is the son of David. And you see this um, in the last item, Zech, again. Well, yes, in this sense, but let's take it back. As the gospel story begins, we're told that Yeshua was to be called Yeshua, okay? And this is in the context of a story about Zechariah. Well, there is a Yeshua who shows up in Zechariah. There it's translated Joshua. It's the same name. He's the, he's the high priest. And in Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13, talking about the high priest, Yeshua, He's first of all called Branch, and secondly, he's sitting on a throne. Now, who sits on a throne, gang? Kings. What do high priests do? They're always standing. So we have a merged figure of a king-priest. Now, look at what we've done thus far, what Luke's done thus far. He shows us Yeshua as a priest. He shows us that he is son of David. What does that make him? King-priest, which was one of the expectations, again, of that time period. And in fact, 
Luke concludes, Luke 24, verses 50 and following, with this very striking scene. Just before he ascends, Yeshua raises his hands and he blesses the people, which is exactly what is recorded of Simon the Maccabee, who became the head of the Hasmonean line and took over the roles of both king and priest. And it, we're told he blessed the people. You think this wasn't going to make a connection to the people of that day? You think they didn't get it? I think they probably did. Boy, that's a lot of stuff. There's no way we're going to make it through all that stuff. So let me do a little hop, skipping, and jumping here. Um, and as much as I'd like to do deal with this section in the beginning with the Targum, I'm not going to do that because I want to step into the second section, cleaning up, um, because it helps us better understand this whole concept of historical patterning that we've been developing thus far. All right, you remember Judah Maccabee since we talked about his older brother Simon? He was the one who liberated the nation. He's the one who, because of the way God worked through him, rescued Judaism. He's the one who preserved the Jewish people. And so he became, as I mentioned yesterday morning, a major hero image for the Jewish people. Now, what was the main thing that Judah Maccabee did? The one thing more important than all the rest. What? Restored the temple, cleansed the temple, rededicated the temple, any one of those things. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. When Yeshua cleaned up the temple, he did it when? Near the end of his life and ministry, right? Not according to John. John brings that story right up to chapter 2, right at the very beginning of his ministry. That doesn't mean he did it twice. That doesn't mean that John got the story incorrect. That simply means these texts, as in the texts of those days, weren't necessarily as interested in chronology as we were. It doesn't mean that they were incorrect or that they were making up facts. They were just... We've seen it in movies and TV shows. Flashbacks. You rearrange the time so as to better tell the story you're wanting to tell. No different. But this puts emphasis on Yeshua following the pattern of, of Judah Maccabee right at the very beginning. Um, and so in this next one, it's not going to surprise you, let's celebrate. Celebrate what? John chapter 10, we find Yeshua showing up in the temple in Jerusalem. It says it's winter. It says it's the time of the festival of dedication. It's the festival of dedication, Hanukkah. So at the very beginning of the gospel, now in the very middle of the gospel, there's Hanukkah stuff. All right. At that time, um, he starts talking about shepherds. So I raised the question, what's all this stuff about shepherds? If you want to know more about that, then you've got to hear Dr. Patrice talk about how this story unfolds, as she did share with the group in Poland. Um, if you know Polish, you can get it in both English and Polish. But anyhow, the point of this is that... Um, the Haftorah passage for Hanukkah during the Second Temple period was the story, Ezekiel 34, of, as God as the great shepherd. So what else would he talk about at Hanukkah time than talking about the Haftorah text for the day? And then we get to, okay, John chapter 2, John chapter 10, John chapter 21. He has this interesting dialogue with Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. It's a direct quotation from Ezekiel 34, which in which text, feed my sheep, occurs three times. It's the Hanukkah Haftorah. There's a Hanukkah focus, beginning, middle, and end. In other words, this is the one who, in fact, um, fulfills the pattern of Judah Maccabee. Mary had a little lamb. What? 
Well, you know the answer to that because we talked about it yesterday morning, so I won't fill you in on it. But again, Judah Maccabee in the Second Temple literature was viewed as a conquering figure that's described as a lamb. All right. There's another striking image in this particular gospel, and again, I'm going to just spell it out for you very quickly. You know this phrase, if I perish, I perish? You ought to if you celebrated Purim. Yeah, it's, it's part of the Esther story. And again, this is something that I did not discover, but that Dr. Patrice did as she was doing some of her graduate work. The parallels between John's cha John chapter 18, 19, and 20 and the book of Esther. So I'm going to draw on just three of the things that she pointed out. She did a, an article on that, if you're interested in that. Um, as Howard instructed me last night, a word of commercial. On the site of the ministry for which we work, menorahministries.com, you will find some of the material that we have produced by way of either articles or books. One of those articles is, I forget whether it's Esther John Redux or John Esther Redux, but you'll find it there. It's the, it's the unwrapping, unwrapping of these parallels. You'll find other things, that, like I said, that we have written there that might be of some benefit to you. Um, so feel free to peruse menorahministries.com. Also, if you're interested in learning about some of the stuff we're talking about now, in a more full-blown way, we do offer courses through Netzer David Yeshiva that's part of St. Petersburg Seminary in Yeshiva. And you can go on that website also, because those particular courses are available to anyone at any time. They're structured in such a way that you don't actually have to show up for class to be in class. Of course, you can show up in for class and be in class. I know it's in St. Petersburg, but you can Skype in. So if any of that kind of thing is of interest to you, it is sptseminary.edu. sptseminary.edu. We'll look for you there. And by the way, it's through those auspices. If you would like, you'll get to hear this wonderful weekend seminar that Rabbi Dr. Michael Schiffman is teaching called Tales of the Magid. Very important stuff, but there's some uh, uh, flyers on the back table if you want to see those. Okay, my commercial time is done. Let's go back to the story. Um, all right. There's a very interesting term that occurs in the book of Esther. Um, in this particular case, the Septuagint of the Greek translation. It's the term lithostratus. It occurs only once in all of the biblical texts of the Older Testament. It turns out it occurs only once in all of the biblical texts of the Newer Testament. Where do you think it might occur in the Newer Testament, having set the stage? John 18, 19, or 20. And it occurs in John 19. So there's a striking... Look, when a word only occurs once in one place and once in another place, that is more than just coincidence, as we've talked about it. It is a definite connector in light of other connections that can be made. Uh, who's afraid of the Jews? Well, at the end of the book of Esther, we're told that the people were afraid of the Jews. This is a striking phrase because down through history, most people are not afraid of us as Jews. However, it occurs again in chapter 9 of the book of Esther, and it occurs twice in all the rest of the Bible, and it occurs, of course, in John 19 and John 20. Is this a coincidence? No, John is making a connection of Yeshua with, well, with whom? Esther or Mordecai? What's the usual rabbinic answer, if I ask a question like that? Both, exactly. Thank you. But we'll tease that out at another time. Um, obviously, as you can see, we're going through lots of stuff. What does the term Purim mean? 
Thank you. You didn't pick that up earlier? Lots of stuff. Well, John is the only one to record this as a prophecy. They divided his clothes by, by lots. Only one who records it, John 19, verse 24. All right, that's really all that we have time for, although I'd love to spend more. So, I want to conclude then with a story. There was a rabbi, a scribe, a Levite, and a priest. Sounds like a good story? Here's how the story ends. As some have suggested to us, and I think properly so, the author of the Gospel of Matthew indicates that in every likelihood, he was not just Matthew the Apostle, but he was in fact a rabbi. You already know the second part. Papias tells us in the second century that Mark functioned as Peter's scribe. If you've listened carefully in talking about um, the Gospel of Luke, he knows an awful lot of stuff about the priesthood and about the temple. And so let me suggest he had to at least been a Levite to know what went on the temple at what particular time in the temples, he tells us in Luke chapter 1, and be as familiar with temple stuff as he is. So yeah, Luke may have been a physician, but it seems to be at he at least was a Levite as well. And here's a radical suggestion that John, not just John the priest, but John the Jew from yesterday morning also was a priest. Why does he say that, you might ask? Do you remember the story of Peter and John outside the priest's house at the end of, this, of the Yeshua story before his death? What happens? Peter gets left in the courtyard. Why does he get left in the courtyard? Because John goes into the house of the priest. Friends, only priests can go into the house of the high priest, in case you missed that story. So my story for you today, in closing, is once there was a rabbi, a scribe, a Levite, and a priest who happened to have the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you get this and you get all the Jewish stuff that is the missing ingredient to this story, then you will understand something else very important that I suggested at the very beginning. It can't possibly be stuff that is Greek stuff that was put together by the Greek church and possibly into the second century because those people had no expertise in this Jewish stuff and had no experience of this Jewish stuff, so they wouldn't have had the ability to concoct Jewish stuff. That tells you something about the authenticity, accuracy, and antiquity of these texts. Fair enough? That's part of the missing ingredient. Thank you.